Happy Easter, everyone. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. This is talking about Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is, a, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the grace we have given to us by you, poured out upon us. We thank you, Lord, we get to celebrate the resurrection of your son today. It is truly glorious that he has victory over the grave, victory over death, victory over sin, and that he has resurrection life. Thank you, Lord, that you give us that resurrection life. That it is found only through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Lord, may many people hear the good news of the gospel today, across this land, uh, and all countries, Lord. That they would hear the truth proclaimed. That Jesus reigns, that he is coming back for his bride. That his resurrection Give them, Lord, freedom from sin if they but repent and trust in him. Bless our time now, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, foremost uh, theologians on justification was, was given um, a talk. He's a well-known professor, written many books, and afterwards... Uh, someone came up to him after he had given one of his talks and asked him, um, if you were uh, in my church and, and a little old lady uh, called you up and said, I'm dying and I, I don't have long to live, will you come uh, and visit me? And when you get there, she says, I'm unsure of my salvation. How do I get to heaven? And so the person asked this well-known, established New Testament professor and theologian, what would you say to her? And he responds, I don't know. How sad. This popular New Testament professor didn't even know how to respond to such a question. But today, brothers and sisters, we're going to see that answer. And if you're not sure where you stand before the Lord, you're going to get to hear that answer as well.
The last few weeks, we've been looking at um, the aspect of God's kingdom. One, a kingdom that we all live in and are a part of, but also there's a kingdom that is coming, and there's a kingdom that only those that repent and believe in are a part of. And I want to continue that focus today, this idea that Jesus and this truth that is proclaimed throughout the scriptures, that Jesus is Lord, ru- ruling over all, and his reign stretches from one end of the universe to the other. And the smallest of the smallest of particles existing at the farthest reach of the universe, guess what? That's under Jesus' reign. And so is the smallest particle in this room right now, and so are all of we. From biggest to smallest, everything, everything, everything is under Jesus' reign. That includes everyone you've talked to this week. That includes everyone you'll talk to today. That includes you and me. It includes every single person. We are all under the reign of Christ. Now, there's two aspects to his reign. He has a present reign. Amen? He has a present reign, but he also has a future reign. But the present reign, it's a very real presence now. And yet, he has a future presence in his reign to come. This becomes more concrete at Jesus' death and resurrection. Not that there was ever any doubt before his death and resurrection, because he reigns, he always reigns, and will continue to reign. His death and resurrection was publicly displayed to the world. But, I mean, not just the physical world, but also the invisible world. And it displayed to them that he is ruler over all. Look, uh, just turn one chapter to Colossians 2, and we'll, we'll see this. We'll pick it up in verse 13 of Colossians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So who makes us alive? God. So he makes us alive together with him. Who forgives us all our trespasses? God, right? I mean, that's what it says. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Who cancels the record of debt? God, right? Okay, you guys are getting good at this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then look what he did. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All this from Christ's death and resurrection So he reigns victoriously. He doesn't just reign with words. He doesn't just reign with deeds. He reigns with resurrection life. What does it say? He put them to open shame. What does it say? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. As we looked at last week, those rulers and authorities, those aren't earthly rulers or kings. Those are are demonic spiritual forces. All of those, he disarmed them. He put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what our Savior did. So he reigns victoriously, and it's with the resurrection life. What did he tell to Martha after her brother Lazarus had died? I am what? The resurrection. What else did he say? I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. This is the resurrection power that Jesus himself has. Think about it for a second. If you were there and you're you're hearing Martha, if you're Martha hearing this, right, 
She, she just says, like, Lord, I know on the last day my brother's going to rise. And then Jesus is like, well, I am the resurrection. Now, he can say that, and he hasn't even died on the cross or risen from the dead yet. He, he does that as a display of what his power is. He does that for the sacrifice for our sins. But before that even occurred, he was still the resurrection and the life. And he will always be the resurrection and the life. So there's this idea when we look at the scriptures and we talk about kingdoms or we talk about reigns, there's this concept that um, theologians use. It's called the already and the not yet. And we're kind of like in between it. Jesus already reigns, but the fullness of his reign is not yet here. There is a sense in which God's kingdom is already in force. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 6, Hebrews 2. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now notice here, we can see a couple things. We have a now. We, we have the now. What's the now? Jesus crowned with glory and honor. But we have the not yet. What's the not yet? Not yet has everything been subjected to him. We haven't seen that yet. We see this same idea in 1 John chapter 3. Look there briefly. Verse 2, 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. See, there's the now, right? And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we, will, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we have that already. This is what we are now. We're God's children, but we have the not yet. We're not sure exactly what it looks like in that future kingdom that we are a part of. What are other examples? Well, we already have the forgiveness of our sins. Yes? But we don't have the consummation which Christ's death and resurrection has secured for us. We haven't realized the fullness of that. We've been freed from sin, right? And one day we will be completely freed from sinning. So we have this already, what God has done, and then what he will one day bring to complete fruition. We already grow in sanctification, but we have not yet been glorified. The world is decaying and passing away, but the new heavens and the earth have not yet come. So we're kind of like in this already, not yet. Now here's what happens. Some people take some of these verses and end up with what's called an over-realized eschatology. It's like they, they take what God has for the future, the not yet, and they try to take the not yet and act like it's now. Let me give uh, some examples and some explanations. Does anyone have a glorified body here? I mean, some of you guys are like, well, I do work out at the gym regularly. 
Some of the blessings are not yet here, right? But you can also, so, so sometimes you can have an over-realized eschatology. Sometimes you can have an under-realized eschatology. You don't even realize what you have in your possession. So let's talk just briefly about b- both. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, and in part he's he's defending his apostleship, but he writes to them, and we're going to pick it up in verse 8. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. He's really using, um, he's being sarcastic. He's, He's kind of mocking them. And, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I mean, he's, he's contrasting what their, their attitude is, and, and they have this over-realized eschatology. He, Paul's saying, like, hey, what do you need us for? I mean, you think you're kings, you think you get all the honor, you think you get all the glory, like, here we are, Paul, poor little apostles trying to do the work. Here's what we're going through. We're suffering. We're working with our own hands. We're being reviled. We're being persecuted. But, oh, everything's great and fine for you. Why don't you take a stand for Christ? So <clears throat> his point is, look at us, the ones who brought you the word of life. We live nothing like you. And that's to your shame. You're acting like the blessings of, of, of the future are yours already. Listen, that, that's the prosperity gospel on display. You've got the health and the wealth. This over-realized eschatology leads to a kind of triumphalism that, that seems to think that everything that you are going to get in the future, you get now. Healing Transform personalities that approach sinless perfection, perfect love, perfect marriages, perfect wealth, perfect, perfect satisfaction, perfect contentment. It's all yours right now. Just name it and claim it. I mean, isn't that the reasoning that the Corinthians are using, and isn't that the reasoning today that some people use? You are the child of the king. Doesn't your dad want you to have everything? Well, we are a child of the king, but the king doesn't hand the keys to the car to the six-year-old and say, happy birthday, okay? I'm giving you an early gift. Drive well. He wants us disciplined. He wants us to learn something about suffering. He wants us to be able to uh, partake in the sufferings of Christ, as Philippians and Colossians will soon talk about. So the new age is coming, but it's not yet here. Now listen, all the blessings that we will ever enjoy in this life and the life to come, Christ has secured them. But we are between the already and the not yet. And if you have this over-realized eschatology, 
you'll imagine that you have some things that are actually reserved for the final transformation and for the final glorification of God's people on the last day, and you'll be sorely disappointed as you live your life. Listen, some of you are on the other side of the spectrum, though. You have an under-realized eschatology. You fail to appreciate what you actually have in Christ. You trusted Christ, you know, 15, 20 years ago and repented of your sins, and occasionally you open up your Bible and read a little bit, but not much has changed. Not much has changed. You still go on your way. You kind of do your own thing. Well, listen, you not only have the forgiveness of sins and the joy of being once and for all declared just before God, amen, but listen, you have ongoing cleansing from sin. Ongoing cleansing. Think about that. You sin, and guess what? God cleanses you. He cleanses you. The blood of the Lamb shed for you. Not just 15 or 20 years ago, but today. And he has poured out his spirit upon us. Guess what? What happens when he does that? When he regenerates us, when he saves us, when he justifies us? He gives us his spirit, right? And what's that spirit doing? He's working upon us so that we begin to love. What do we love? Well, we love what we used to not love, right? We love what we used to not love. We love the things of God. We love his things. We love him. And guess what else? We hate what we used to not hate. We've been transformed. Our personalities are changed. Our goals are changed. Our values are changed. Our direction is changed. Brothers and sisters, if you can't say that, you need to question where you're at with Jesus. All of this is because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. Look at Romans 16, 1.16. This, that's what it says, but I want you to see it. Because some of you need to read it your, yourself. Verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's not merely some declaration of a status. It is that. But it's more. It is power. Power. And we've been reading in Colossians. Go back to Colossians. I mean, we just read it a few uh, weeks ago. Colossians 1. May you be strengthened. Verse 11, chapter 1. May you be strengthened with what? With all power. Be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Well, guess what? That, I mean, that, as we know, that's a prayer that he's praying, but it's something that has happened. We are strengthened with all power. Where does that power come from? From the Holy Spirit himself who dwells inside of us, who empowers us to live a transformed life, to, to have transformed thoughts, and to live in a way that pleases God. And earlier in 1 Thessalonians, which we've been going through, look what he says there. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word. So, I mean, it does come in word. That's the declaration. We do have to speak if we want to share the gospel with people. But it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. I mean, if there's no power, there's no transformation. That's not our power. That's God's power. 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We, we got to speak the words, but guess what? The Holy Spirit has to be there doing the work. He has to have his power doing the work for lives to be transformed. Have you experienced the power of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life? And look what he says in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Verse 20, Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Okay, so what do we have right now? We've got the lowly body, right? But what's he going to do? He's going to give us a glorious body. He's going to give us a glorified body. How is he going to do it? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. By his power, he's going to do that. His resurrection power, his resurrection life. All things, notice we'll come back to it later, but all things are subject to him. The triune God has sovereign rule over the earth. It is past, it is present, and it is future. Look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. What does his kingdom rule over? What does it rule over? What does it rule over? All. All, right? Again, not one little speck or particle outside his ruler reign. Justice read it earlier, right? Not one hair drops to the ground. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He knows the affairs of men, and he knows what's going on with us. Past, present, and future, he's reigning. Look at Psalm 47. We see a similar concept. Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And then it gives us the reason for doing that. Verse 2. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. I mean, here we are in the Old Testament. We could go psalm after psalm after psalm, verse after verse after verse, and it is crystal clear that God reigns. Not just over Palestinian land, not just over Israel, not just over them, over all the earth. A great king over all the earth. What's, what's the result of that? That alone, brothers and sisters, should result in us clapping our hands and shouting to God with loud songs of joy. 
Proverbs 21. No, Proverbs 8, sorry, Proverbs 8. Verse 15, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me kings reign. Every king on the throne that's ever been on this earth, because God's put him there. By his sovereign decree, he's placed him there. By me kings reign. So what's Jesus doing now? Well, he's reigning, right? He's still on the throne. Has he moved at all? No. 1 Corinthians, we see this clearly. Starts out in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Notice what it says right at the end there. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Has he fully done that yet? No. Did he make a display on his death and resurrection, that it was finished? Yeah, I mean, that's what he said, right? It is finished. But has that been brought to the fruition that we've seen? Not yet. Not yet. But he must reign until he has all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what's Jesus doing now? He's reigning. He's reigning. First Peter 3 says, He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Everything has been subjected to the reign and authority of Jesus. And our, our king, our savior, Jesus, listen, he is coming back to this earth. He's coming back to redeem us. He is coming back to claim a people for his own. What does Isaiah 9 tell us? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
So what do, we, what do we learn? A deliverer is coming. But guess what? He's not just a deliverer. You know who he is? He's my deliverer. And he's your deliverer. And guess what? My deliverer is coming. He is coming back. And he is standing by. And he is at the threshold of the door of his coming kingdom, ready to return and claim his children for his own. My deliverer is coming. And what's he going to come when he comes back? He's going to rule the earth. That's what he's going to do. The government, it says, is upon his shoulders. What do you think that means? He's got the power. The government is upon his shoulders. He will have a reign which stretches across to the ends of the earth. It will be unlike anything we've ever seen. But what happened? What happened? All these promises given to the Israelites. And what happened? Well, look at Micah 5. Micah 5, it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So destruction is prophesied. The siege is coming. The Israelites are about to be exiled. But, but, hope remains. God is always so gracious, even in the midst of prophesying coming destruction, to give hope. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Did the Israelites remember this? Uh, not really. Year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, hundreds of years go by, no king for year after year after year. And then what happens? It takes people who aren't even Israelites to show up on the scene, and in Matthew 2 they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? God has to use people from a foreign land to come searching for Jesus because Jesus was right in the midst of his own people and they didn't even recognize it. That's what John says, right? He came to those which were his own and they did not even see it. Let's not forget the king is coming back. So what is Christ over? He's over everything. Look at Ephesians Ephesians 1. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then notice what it says here, brothers and sisters, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Like, name any name, right? Any name. Christ was over that name. That's what it says. Any name that can be named. The Greek gods, the Roman gods, the Norse gods, the Hindu gods, Moses, Buddha, Lao Tzu, Muhammad, he's over them too. All those names. All those false gods. And he's far above them. That's what it says. Notice what he says, verse 21, far above. Far above. He's so far above them that from where he sits, you'd have to get out a good pair of binoculars to see them. And even then, they'd be little specks, little specks of dust in the distance. He is far above all. And yet, we wilt. And we faint. And we fret, and we're like, oh, oh, this is going to happen, this bad thing, and oh, how will I get through this? No, he is far above. Far above. He's ruling it overall. All right? He knows what those particles are doing on the edge of the universe. Don't you think he has a little bit more concern for you, his children? Absolutely. So we don't need to wilt or faint or fret. You start to doubt or tremble or grow weary or faint? Remember, he is far above. He's in charge. He's got this. You don't have to worry. Why? Listen, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer here, if you've repented and and, and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're in the new covenant. Guess what the new covenant contains? It contains forgiveness. Listen, the old covenant didn't contain that. You want forgiveness? You have to be under the new covenant. You know, people talk about the Jews being saved in the, in the uh, latter days, and some of them definitely will be, but it's going to happen under the new covenant. That's the only way you can be saved. It's under the new covenant. The old covenant, I mean, it did bring something. You want to know what the old covenant brought? It brought death. It brought death. That's what it brought. Death. Not just animal death. It just brought death. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. You're like, I, I don't know if it brought death, Pastor. 2 Corinthians 3. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, okay, I mean, that's what it was, a ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation talking about the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness must 
far exceeded in glory. I mean, you, you see the contrast going on. The old covenant compared and contrasted with the new covenant. W- what are we seeing? It, it doesn't even really compare, does it? I mean, there's no, there's no comparison, so to speak. Indeed, verse 10, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. I mean, did God set up his old covenant in a beautiful way? Absolutely. But the new covenant is so much more glorious, that's what Paul's saying, that it makes the old one with glory, doesn't even look like it has glory. Think about that. And that's the covenant that we're under, the new covenant. That's what God has done for us. That's one of the specific blessings of the covenant. Forgiveness. He writes the law on our hearts, right? Listen, on Friday, for the disciples, the followers of Jesus, their their perspective, all hope was gone. All dreams dashed. And their light snuffed out. Yet, three days later, a lot can happen in three days. Circumstances can change just like that. What was a party in the demonic spiritual world turned into the most despised cries ever heard. The devil had been tricked, duped, and deceived, and he bought the whole thing. He thought he won. Crucified the Son of God. Victory. Think about it. The deceiver was deceived. And the tempter tempted himself into thinking he had won. And the accuser only had himself to blame. Why? Because as the scripture said, and as we looked at in Colossians, Jesus put the devil to shame. Put him to shame. And it wasn't just some private shame. Put him to open shame. Jesus has a great love for you. Think about it for a moment. He created the men who decreed his death. And he let them keep living. That crown of thorns that he wore, yeah, that was from a bush that he created. And the nails driven into him, that's from the raw materials that he himself created and put in the earth. He even created the tree on which he was to die. And listen, if we only got what the thief on the cross was promised that day, today you'll be with me in paradise, we'd be doing great. But we get so much more. That's why some of us, we have this this under-emphasized eschatology. We, we, we just think, oh, it's about me trusting in Christ, and then I just got to go do exactly what he says. You're missing out on the blessings of Jesus and walking in the power of the Spirit and seeing him do amazing things in your midst. If you're totally sold out for the Lord, on fire for him, walking for him, living for him, it's more than just one day you'll be with me in paradise. That is an excellent promise. And guess what? That thief is with Jesus right now. But we get so many more blessings, so many more blessings than just, oh, one day we'll die and go to heaven. We get blessings now. That's the already. There is a big aspect to the already that we already have. 
God's Spirit poured out upon us, living inside us, resurrection power enabling us to what? Say no to sin and say yes to God. We have been dipped in the blood of the Lamb completely and fully, our sins wiped away, and guess what? We can say no to sin. You can be tempted and you don't have to give in to it. When, you, when the believer gives in to, into, into sin, he's going against what, what his new nature has been made. We're the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. The new creation. And you go back, you go back and sinning and you're putting those chains back on again. And you're saying, oh, I'm really the old creation. You're, you're going against the very thing that God has made you. The new creation. So what about that little old lady about to die, wanting some measure of hope? Well, the answer is this, like, how can I get to heaven? It's through repentance and trusting in Christ. What he did was enough. When he said those three words, just one in the Greek, it is finished to tell us die. It is finished. He, he, had, he had accomplished it. What, he, what did he accomplish? The forgiveness of your sins, that he paid the penalty. But not only did he, did he take away your sins, he gave you his righteousness. Just taking away your sins just kind of brings you back to like a, a morally neutral area, if you will. Well, that doesn't get you into heaven, just being morally neutral. No, you need righteousness. And what does Christ himself do? He gives you his own righteousness. So he takes something from you. He takes your sin and your wickedness, and he pays the price. He's the one that's punished instead of you. And then what does he do? He gives you his righteousness. What does that accomplish? You are made right with God. Once an enemy, now a friend. Once against him, now adopted into his kingdom as a child. Sometimes we think that the gospel is, well, you know, that, that's, for, that's for, you know, those, those people that are against God and, and, and don't like him. The gospel is that we are the enemy of Christ. That we were the enemies that were against him. Just like whatever opponents we might have in this world. And what did God do when we were enemies of his? He sent his own son. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. So the gospel is that you are the enemy of Christ by nature, but Christ died to save his enemies. He will have mercy on you if you turn to him. And sometimes you're like, well, you know, if I was living during the time of Jesus, you know, I, I would have been one of his faithful followers. Well, yeah, maybe, and you would have turned tail and run just like they did in the Garden of Gethsemane. There weren't any faithful followers. Jesus knew from before creation his followers would abandon him. He knew before the first time he met them on this earth they'd turn away. He knew that the night he was eating with them he knew that the night that he washed their feet, he knew, and he still loved, and he still forgave. And the same is true for us. The things that we've done, the things that we do, the things we will do, Jesus already knows it. And yet, he still loves us. He still loves us. He still came, 
He still accomplished the mission he was sent to do. And then he offers to us, what? The resurrection life. The eternal life. How does that happen? Turning away from your sin through repentance and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. If you do that, then you receive the forgiveness. You have to come to Christ and ask. You have to ask to receive. And then he'll give you his righteousness. Part of that righteousness is the gift of eternal life that we've been blessed for him to offer freely. So I encourage you today, repent of your sins. Repent. Turn away from them and trust in Christ. He alone, he alone is the Savior. He's not a Savior. He alone is the Savior. He's already far above, right? Far above. Why would we think of turning anywhere else? He is the one we bow down to. He is the one we worship. He is the one we trust. It's in him and him alone that salvation is found. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that the salvation comes from you, that you are the resurrection and the life. Spirit, we thank you that you come and and renew our hearts, that you regenerate us. And Father, we thank you for sending your Son for us. Lord, there are people here today that do not know you. May they trust in you today. May they turn away from their sins. May they humble themselves and come to you and seek your face and ask forgiveness. You are gracious. You are ready to forgive. May they trust in you today, Lord, and receive eternal life. Do this for your glory. Amen.